Hey everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the VC10X podcast and today we have Seth Levine with us. Seth is a co-author of The New Builders, a book that brings you face to face with the true future of business. A long-time venture capitalist, Seth is a co-founder and managing director of Foundry Group, a Boulder, Colorado-based venture firm. He's a passionate advocate for entrepreneurship. Seth also spends time as an advisor to venture funds and companies around the world. In this episode, we talk about how Seth started Foundry, reverse inflation in venture capital, all about his book, The New Builders, why he thinks entrepreneurship in the US is in a state of decline, and a lot more. Without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Oh, wait, if you haven't subscribed to VC10X yet, please do and give us a five-star rating if you find value in this episode. And for any insights you gather from this episode, feel free to share it on social media and tag VC10X. We'll make sure to reshare your post to get it more visibility. Now let's start. Hey, Sid. So good to have you on the VC10X podcast. How are you doing? I'm great, Prashant. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And uh, I know that you recently have a book that came out, The New Builders. We're going to talk all about it. But before we do that, let's talk about your story and how you started investing. Sure. Well, I've been an investor for a while now. Um, I <laughs> I had... I, when I graduated from from college, which was a long time ago now, I had a number of jo- different jobs. I was in corporate development, did a lot of deals, but was in banking briefly, um, and I eventually re- ended up in a um, operational role uh, at a at a public company and spent a bunch of time uh, managing some divisions at that company, um, and then sort of rode the bubble and the bubble burst back in two thousand two thousand one, and I was kind of looking for something something new in my career and and. Um, I, uh, I had some offers to go be like a general manager again, and I enjoyed that, but, but I thought I would try venture. And, and so I, I had a bunch of friends from banking that had gone into venture, uh, sort of better timing than I did because they were, they were there in the late 90s. But um, I ended up uh, kind of networking with a bunch of folks, uh, and eventually one of the people that I met with was uh, my now partner, Brad Feld. And so we, um, we hit it off, and it's a longer story behind it, but eventually I ended up starting uh, starting to work for Brad at what was then called SoftBank Venture Capital. Uh, it was re- later renamed as Mobius. This was in 2001. Did a lot of workouts, a lot of troubled assets, uh, and um, and you know some challenged businesses. But it was a great way to learn venture. Obviously, Brad was an incredible person to learn venture from. And then in 2000 and probably 2005, we started talking about sort of maybe doing something on our own. Mobius wasn't able to raise the next fund that they had wanted to raise. And, and so that's what led to the conversation um, that eventually became Foundry, uh, which is the firm that I founded with Brad and, and two other partners, uh, Ryan and Jason, in 2006. And that just that timing was great. We raised our first fund in 2007, took us the entire year. That'll be an interesting story if you want to get into it. And, uh, but eventually did raise that first fund um, and, uh, and it, that fund did really well. Um, and that was, I mean, almost $4 billion ago, uh, in terms of assets under management, we've grown a, a pretty big platform now. Yeah, absolutely. I read that on your website and like, that's a really big fund, a 4 billion assets under management. And, uh, so what was it like when you first entered the scene? Uh, was it easy to raise because you had previous venture background or people were skeptical? So how, how did that go? It was extremely hard to raise. Um, there wasn't such a thing as emerging manager right now, everywhere you look, there's like, you know, new, younger emerging managers, right. Falling off of every tree. 
Um, I think, by the way, that's good for the venture industry. Like, I, I think actually that that's important. And I think one of the things that we've learned over the last 15 years is that really good returns can come from anywhere. That wasn't the way that the world viewed venture as an asset class in 2006 and 2007 when we were raising. Um, the adage back then was, you know, if you really weren't in Kleiner, Sequoia, uh, et cetera, then um, it, then you sort of wasn't worth being in the asset class. And so there, and there weren't really emerging managers, right? Union Square had raised one of their funds, but it was, this was pre-Zynga, pre-Twitter, uh, sort of before, before they had really kind of broken out. Um, first round had raised a fund, True had just raised a fund. So there were a few people out there, but none of them had any returns uh, to speak to at that point. And, um, and, you know, fortunately for us, we found a couple of LPs, specifically the University of Texas uh, endowment that believed in sort of the potential of this, of these new managers, but it was, it was hard. And we I actually remember a moment um, we were probably, we really kicked off fundraising in sort of the end of, of January, 2007. And by probably about May, it was pretty clear to me that we weren't going to raise a fund. Um, and I actually remember coming home and, and this was back when, you know, you had to write a, a PPM uh, and, you know, offering documents, things like that. There was a huge amount of legal costs, not to mention travel, et cetera. And, um, you know, I'd sort of made and lost money in the bubble. So I, I didn't have a lot of in savings. I'd staked my entire savings to start Foundry, like my portion of it. I, I just, you know, I had a little bit of money, but not nothing, <laughs> nothing to write home about. And I'd put it all on the table for Foundry. And I remember coming home and saying to my wife, hey, I don't know that this is going to work. I think I may have just blown up our you know, what little savings we had. Um, and I don't even know what I'm going to do, right? I've been a VC now for, you know, whatever it was, four or five years. And I, I didn't really feel super qualified to sort of do anything else. Um, fortunately, in the next month after that, you, Timco came in and said, hey, we want to be 20% of your fund. And, and you know, as these things go, right, as soon as a couple people say yes, Morgan Stanley quickly said yes after that. And, and then all of a sudden, we went from struggling to raise what we wanted to raise, which was $175 million at the time, to having to pick a hard cap or, you know, a cap and, and we ended up capping it at, at 225 million. And so, you know, that was, and that was a great fund, right? The first company we invested in was Zynga, which obviously went public. We did really well on the third company was a company called AdMel that was bought by Google. Uh, we, we did a seed round in that business back when seeds were 3 million post. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, they were bought by Google uh, three or four years later for, nearly half a billion dollars. So we, we, we had some really good early wins. Obviously there was Fitbit in that fund as well. And, uh, and then all of a sudden we never had any trouble raising money. And it was interesting how quickly we flipped from that, but, um, but it was hard. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the industry has changed. I, I think that there are, I mean, as, as someone who now is an active investor initially personally, along with Brad, Ryan and Jason, and, and now uh, institutionally, cause our fund invests in other funds now, um, in this asset class, in this emerging manager asset class, there are some really interesting people that are uh, running uh, venture funds right now. And I think that they deserve to be funded. So I'm glad that the industry has moved on from the, hey, there's only three or four venture funds worth investing in. Because the truth is there are lots of interesting funds out there. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And one interesting thing I find there is that you targeted to raise about $175 million as your first fund. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that's audacious even today uh, so back then was it like the usual that th this is the fund size usual fund size or did you make a big bet at that time well 
I mean, you have to remember a couple things. I mean, one is just that that, that uh, there weren't these smaller, m- many of these smaller funds running around. I mean, really, that was sort of maybe a little bit on the large side for for sort of a, a first time fund, but but uh, and there wasn't this sort of co- same concept of seed um, back then. It was really companies went kind of straight to Series A. Um, mostly because the cost of starting a business was just much higher, right? I mean, we didn't, we hadn't modularized technology. And so we didn't have platforms that enabled you, like, you know, Shopify, if you wanted to set up a shopping cart or, um, you know, SendGrid, if you wanted to deal with bulk email or, you know, whatever, there's a million Twilio for, for text. I mean, we didn't have any of that stuff. Right. Um, and so the result was that it was more expensive to get things going because there was just more development work that needed to be done. And so because of that, the fund sizes, I think, were, were a bit bigger because it, it really just didn't make sense back then to have, you know, a $25 million slug of capital. It just, it just wouldn't go far enough. So there weren't very many funds like that. So, you know, it was maybe a little bit on the large side for back then, but it wasn't, it's not, it wasn't as large in that context as it sounds now with all these 25 and $50 million funds running around that, by the way, can do quite well because, you know, you can put... Uh, you can put a seed round together where, you know, a seed might be a few million dollars, you know, across a, a handful of funds. And that didn't really exist as much back kind of back in the day. There might have been a, some seed rounds that were a few million bucks by two funds, but they really had to be prepared to kind of take the next step and fund fund the next round. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so it, it's kind of like reverse inflation in a way that 175 million back then was is now maybe 50 or 75 million dollars right now. Is that correct? Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, look, this happens across like, like the CPA consumer price index, right? I mean, yeah. you know, the features you get on your car today are significantly greater than the features that were on your car 10 years ago or 20 years ago, right? right. It, it has, you know, lane assist and and if you go far enough back, airbags and, you know, better seatbelt, all that kind of stuff. And that that's not always reflected in how we think about, in uh, you know, sort of inflation in that perspective. So yeah, there's been a little bit of reverse inflation as it, as it relates to the cost of starting a business. Um, because a lot of those initial costs have come way down. And, and by the way, the, the other thing that's come way down is the ability to market to an initial group of users. Um, and so you can get product feedback um, quite quickly on a, you know, on a truly sort of beta, even alpha product and understand whether you're heading in the right direction. Uh, whereas, you know, when I think back towards the start of my venture career, which is over 20 years ago now, there, you just had to, you had to build quite a lot more. And then you had to spend a bunch of time going out and finding people who were interested in it. It was not, uh, we didn't have these sort of open platforms in the way that we do today, uh, at least not as effective um, at, uh, you know, at, at pulling people into the top of the funnel, at least initially. And so there's a lot more product feedback and market feedback that you can get for a lot less money today. So it's really a, not just the tech stack question. It's really across the kind of the, the main expenses of starting a business. All of that has come down precipitously in the last, you know, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Like we've made a lot of progress in the past 20 years and doing a business is obviously a lot, lot easier than what it used to be back then. Right. And uh, now let's move on to the exciting part, which is your book that has come out, which is called The New Builders, right? So what is The New Builders all about? Uh, Can you give us a glimpse of it? Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. I'm really proud of this work. I wrote it with a journalist friend of mine, Elizabeth McBride. Um, And, you know, it was a number of years ago, she and I came together and and we were talking about, we we met over um, some entrepreneurship activities that were going on in Palestine, of all places. Um, and, and she had an interest over there. I continue to do quite a bit of work over in Palestine and Middle East more broadly. 
And, um, and we would trade stories of interesting entrepreneurs kind of around the world. Um, and at one point she was coming through Boulder and she and I sat down and we, we, we really talked about, this was probably five or six years ago, the, the fact that we felt like no, uh, no outlets, no mainstream outlets were really talking about um, interesting stories of entrepreneurs building businesses outside of the Valley, right? And, and, and different types of entrepreneurs. We knew that um, women and people of color were starting businesses at, at high rates. Um, and it didn't, didn't seem to be reflected in the world in which she and I lived in, right? She was a business tech journalist and, and um, obviously I'm, I'm in the middle of venture and venture capital. Um, and so we started by just sort of thinking like, well, let's tell these stories. And when we dug into it, we realized that there was a really important story that needed to be told, this narrative that entrepreneurship in the U.S. has actually been lagging. It's not something that people realize. Um, and in fact, when we took some of our early findings to our friends in, in business journalism and venture capital, the most common response we got was, well, that, that's wrong, right? Your data are wrong. Um, and we, we showed it to them and, and reminded them that really only 1% of companies take money from venture capital. Um, so the world in which we live in is very much uh, sort of a, a I don't want to say a fantasy land. It's it, it sort of off on its own is probably the better way to say it, right? I mean, it, it doesn't reflect entrepreneurship more broadly in the United States. Obviously, venture is and venture-backed companies are really important, right? I mean, many small businesses that aren't venture-backed make use of venture-backed technologies. Um, and, and of course, there's a lot of money and quite a few jobs uh, that get created by the venture ecosystem. Um, but... Um, more broadly, uh, most businesses aren't don't look like Silicon Valley companies. They don't look like the companies that you you know you talk to on your podcast and that I work with in my day job. Um, and in fact, um, a couple of trends were really interesting and, and very powerful. In, in particular, women were starting businesses at a, at a rate that's four times that of men. Um, white men are actually the minority now of business owners in the United States. Uh, and in addition, um, uh, black women in particular are starting businesses at a very high rate. Six, over 60% of all women started businesses are, are businesses started by black women. Um, but, but yet we have not done a very good job of, of connecting capital with these new builders, right? These people that are actually starting businesses. And, and, and so our, our view is that, um, those two things are combining to create these challenges in sort of the new business ecosystem in the United States. We're, we're not recognizing that the business landscape has changed and we're doing little or nothing to change the way that we support these businesses and change the way that we fund these businesses, uh, allow them access to capital. And so, and that could be bank financing. It could be friends and family. It could be community loan funds. I mean, there's all, all sorts of ways that small businesses, um, uh, you know, receive financing. And, and I think what's lost potentially in this larger narrative that we're spinning around, you know, the power of Silicon Valley and these, lar you know, these businesses that can grow really quickly um, it is the value of a small business, right? And, and some of whom may grow quite large and, and many of which uh, will remain small and be powerful, even though they are small and, and be run by people that are strong community members that are important um, people to their local ecosystems. And, and I think we sometimes lose that um, by all this talk about, you know, unicorns and, and how big your business is, is growing and whether you'll be worth a billion dollars. And, and we've lost the sense and, the, and the, the realization that, you know, small businesses in and of themselves are, selves are also valuable. And so the book really speaks to all of these trends. And, and we do it by highlighting 
we put the new builder label on these businesses because we wanted sort of a rallying cry. We wanted, you know, a, a way to describe them. Um, and we really liked new builders. It, it's, it's positive. It speaks to the future. Uh, importantly, the new builders themselves that we talked to really loved that, that label. Um, and so in the book, we, we sort of marry facts and figures. It's, it's very research-based. I, I didn't count them, but there are you know, hundreds of endnotes, right, where we cite various references and things like that. Um, and so we marry those facts and figures with stories of new builders, and we highlight oh, maybe 20 new builders in the book. Um, and so many of the chapters sort of start with a story and then of a new builder and then weave in um, some background information that are more that's more broad about the overall ecosystem um, to punctuate that story. So it's, you know, it's I don't know, it's a labor of love, right? I mean, no one just sort of falls out of bed and writes a book, and it was not an easy book to write. Like you know, a lot of VCs write books where they sit down in front of a computer and they, you know, pontificate for uh, a while, and they they write a couple hundred pages of that. And by the way, those are some great books, right? I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with with those, and and these are people that have great backgrounds. Um, this book was was very different than that because of all the research that went into it. I and mean, we spent a solid year, um, not just meeting and interviewing new builders, but but reviewing, you know, many hundreds of studies and research documents and things like that before we were ready to really put pen to paper. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm really proud of the effort, Prashan. I, I really feel like, um, I think it's an important book. And I think it's a, uh, I'm really glad that we wrote it. And I'm glad that I participated in writing it, right? I mean, I think that, um, and I know Elizabeth feels the same way. Like our day jobs don't always align with uh, with what we talk about in the book, and and I'm I'm spending more time in that world now uh, because of what I learned in the book. But but in any event, it's a long way of saying it's a it's something I hope your listeners will pick up and read um, because it's a really powerful and important uh, uh, thing for people to understand about our economy right now. Yeah, absolutely. And it definitely from the first sound of it sounds like something that's a narrative that's needed in the present ecosystem very much. And yeah. that is what the book uh, puts forth. And uh, let's, let's try to piece out different aspects of this answer that you just gave, because there were multiple mm. uh, facets to it, right? So the first one being that you said that the entrepreneurship in US in a state of decline, right? So what makes you say that? Yeah, I mean, certainly if you just measure the no, the net new number of businesses started, right? So the number of businesses that are started less the number of businesses that fail in any given year, um, that number has been declining uh, since they started measuring, which is essentially after World War II. And in, in fact, in the Great Recession, it ended up becoming negative for the first time since they started recording it, right? So in, you know, whatever that was, 50 plus years. Um now there's been a bit of a blip with COVID, right? Which is which is I think hopeful. The, the number of uh, you know license applications for new businesses has gone way up. Um, some of that may be people participating in the gig economy and, and forming LLCs to do that. Um, and by the way, we and we can talk about the gig economy as well. Like the gig economy is sort of a separate separate form of entrepreneurship that I think is is one that is worth recognizing, right? Because I think that that more and more people are becoming more entrepreneurial. Um, by participating in the gig economy, there's there's upsides and downsides to that, right? I mean, in some ways, it's we, you know, we talk about stories of people sort of being um, uh, enabled by their work in the gig economy. They can you know use that money to go back to school, et cetera. But there's also a dark side to that, where you know there are some 
platforms that don't really allow you, uh, their drivers or their users, participants to make uh, sort of a, a living full and living wage that seems to take advantage of them, right? So there's, you know, there's, there, there's a, a double-sided coin there. Um, but in any event, that th- those are the numbers, right? I mean, the, the, the num- net new number of business starts is has been declining. Um, there are some other measures as you think about it. The concentration of large businesses has gone way up. Um, the uh, chances that a new storefront opening is actually just another uh, storefront for an existing business versus it's it, a, an initial storefront for a new business. Um, it much more likely today to be a uh, storefront from an existing business op- opening a new location, right? So there's this sort of higher concentration of uh, larger businesses in our economy right now, which again, we believe to be pretty pernicious uh, to the overall ec- economic dynamism of the U.S. economy. And I should, I should also say, Prashant, that the book does not, is not a big business is bad, small business is good uh, at all, right? We talk about the balance of big and small and how these t- these businesses come together to form um, sort of a certain ebb and flow in our economy, but that ebb and flow needs to stay at least somewhat in balance. And, and uh, it feels like it's become quite out of balance. And that's, you know, important for us to recognize. Yeah. And in the book, you cite that, that the reason why this is happening can be that uh, the definition of entrepreneurship in the U.S. is kind of driven by the Silicon Valley culture, and that isn't serving the whole entrepreneurship culture in the United States. So what do you think uh, should be the right definition of entrepreneurship? Because right, right now we are looking at it from the perspective of venture capital and what gets funded and what makes the news, right? But what do you think is entrepreneurship? I mean, it's interesting when you trace the history, and we do in the book, of not just the word entrepreneur, but also how it was used, especially in, in the United States. And 100 years ago, entrepreneur was, you know, almost everyone in the economy, right? I mean, most people were small business owners. There were far fewer large businesses, maybe 100, 150 years ago. Um, and um, and that was a, you know, a term of, of endearment, and, and it was it meant something to be an entrepreneur. Um, interestingly, it was... It was Ronald Reagan in the 1980s uh, who started sort of significantly narrowing the, 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 what he meant when he said the word entrepreneur. He was using entrepreneurship and in particular Silicon Valley style of entrepreneurship. Uh, he had been the governor, as you know, of California and, and really at the, he was the governor at the birth of Silicon Valley, right, in the 60s. Um, and then fast forward to when he was president in the 80s. Um, he was uh, using entrepreneurship as a, as a diplomatic tool. He was trying to contrast communism and central planning with capitalism and free markets. And, and he loved the image of sort of the, the entrepreneurial cowboy. Um, and, and as you know, Reagan was a rancher. So that imagery, and of course, he starred in a bunch of Western movies when he was a, uh, an actor. So that imagery really spoke to him. And so when, when he talked about entrepreneurship, he really meant – uh, tech entrepreneurship, right? It really differentiated the United States from Russia, uh, for, from the Soviet Union back then. And um, and so he used it in that way to really kind of narrow the definition. And, and and since then, we've sort of just allowed that to take take hold. And so, the, you know, these days, it was interesting to talk to many new builders, and we would often refer to them as entrepreneurs, or we'd ask them about their entrepreneurial journey. And they their response would be, well, I'm not an entrepreneur, right? That's not, you know, I'm not, running a tech business. And, and, uh, and after we talked to them for a little while, right, they'd sort of have this, this awakening moment, eye-opening moment where they'd, they'd really get it like, no, 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 wait, you're right. I am an entrepreneur. We just, you know, it's only in the last 
30 years that we've narrowed that down. And, and I think that's a mistake, right? I mean, I, I think that entrepreneurship is something that should be celebrated more widely. And, you know, when I tell people only 1% of businesses take money from venture capital, again, they, they generally don't believe me. Um, and, but that's the stats, right? That's, that's, that's what we're talking about. And, and again, venture powers are really important part of our economy. And, and certainly those, those companies punch above their weight, right? They, they don't, you know, they, they impact certainly far more than 1% of our economy. So I'm not suggesting that's not important, but it's really important to think about how we're getting capital and mentorship to these other businesses, these 99% of businesses that don't become part of these formal venture capital networks, you know, which are so good at helping promote businesses, but not always great at promoting and funding businesses started by the people that are starting businesses today, right? Women and people of color. Yeah, absolutely. And like uh, talk, talk, talking personally, when I first uh, learned about the book, my first impression was that since it's written by a VC, this must be about increasing representation and inclusion in the VC sphere, because I know for a fact that only one to two percent of the venture funding goes to underrepresented founders. So that is also a big problem to tackle. Uh, but it uh, seems like there is a much larger scope to the book, uh, not just underrepresented founders, but founders who are not even right now recognized as entrepreneurs, uh, but are actually in business and are very much entrepreneurs themselves, right? Yeah, there is. I mean, I and that is not to say that I don't recognize or want to help change the challenges that venture have with has with the, you know, s- significant underrepresentation of both funding, but also check writers who are women and people of color. And, and right. so that's a, that's a separate discussion. It's something I think is really important. I'm glad, I'm glad that as an industry, we're at least starting to talk about it. I, it feels like it's starting to change, but that change is slow. We have not seen it in the numbers. Um, and I, you know, I speak as someone who, you know, now runs, helps run a platform in Foundry that is making significant investments, especially on the fund side in GPs that are, um, you know, are women and people of color, right? Specifically black uh, GPs, um, as well as, you know, GPs from other backgrounds. Um, but that change takes a little while to sort of roll through the ecosystem. And I think we're right to be impatient about it and say, hey, why aren't, why don't more of these founders have uh, have access, right? And and it was, it's interesting. I was just, uh, someone forwarded me a, a sort of a Twitter stream uh, last night that was talking about this, right? That, that there are some really interesting uh, businesses being started, venture backable business being started by people of color, um, but they s- continue to struggle to get access to and to be taken seriously by, you know, people like me, frankly, right? Like people who are in the, in the seats of, of check writing power, at least. Um, and I think that we've just got a long, long way to go to, to sort of fix those problems. But, but the book itself is not about that. The book is about entrepreneurship much more broadly. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to write it was I felt like, you know, because of my 20-year experience in Silicon Valley, I, my voice would be listened to, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of lend that platform to, um, to highlight some changes that I think need to happen in our broader economy and that I hope happen in our broader economy. Yeah, that that surely is something that is needed right now. So let's uh, get specific here. So who are the new builders that you're talking about here? Who are these people and where do you find them? Yeah, so the new builders, well, they're everywhere, of course. Um, but uh, the new builders is a term that describes the, the, you know, the, the women and people of color in particular, immigrants, um, and other folks that are starting businesses today. Um, and, um, and there are also, uh, 
people that are a little bit older than than folks recognize, right? So it's it's intended to be a blanket term, right? It's not intended to exclude white men who are starting businesses, but it's intended to highlight the fact that the people that are starting businesses today are new. They look a little different than most people expect. Um, and so that's, you know, that's how we think of new builders and 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 we think of them as like incredibly gritty, incredibly powerful, incredibly impactful in their communities. Um, and, you know, the stories that we tell really kind of describe that. Um, but they're they're in trouble in the sense that that, as I mentioned earlier, we're not doing a good job of getting capital to them. Um, only about 17 percent of companies take money from banks. Uh, so one percent from venture capital, 17 from banks. So that's over 80 percent that are sort of left to fend for themselves. And um, that's really challenging for groups of people who have historically had uh, lower wealth profiles, right? The average black family across all income and educational attainment levels has less wealth, significantly less wealth than the average white family. It's On, on average, it's one-tenth. The average Hispanic family has one-seventh the wealth of the average white family, right? This speaks to hundreds of years of systemic racism and lack of access to uh, to power and, and to economic uh, mobility for these groups of people. And yet we're asking them to fund their businesses essentially on their own. Um, someone said something to me. It did, the quote didn't make it into the book because she said it to me after we finished <laughs> writing it. But um, it's a woman who runs a network to, to support black women founders. And she said, you know, when you give someone a small amount of money, you force them to think small. Um, and when you give them a larger amount of money, you enable them to think more broadly and to think bigger. And I think we've made the mistake in the U.S. of thinking that um, businesses started by women and people of color are less successful um, because they were started by women and people of color and therefore at, lack access to capital. The, the, actually, the reverse is true, right? And there have been study after study that's shown if you normalize for the amount of capital that, it, that was available, um, they are at least as successful, if not more successful, than uh, businesses started by their, uh, their white counterparts. Um, but we are not doing a good job of getting them, getting them capital. So we're forcing them to think small, and then we're blaming them for not being bigger. Um, and that's completely backwards. Now, even when they get into the banking system, we know that the banking system has systemic bias in it. There have been a, a number of studies around this. We cite a bunch of them in the book um, that describe women and people of color as uh, you know, applying for lower loan amounts, being approved for lower, lower loan amounts, paying higher interest rates, um, and being less likely to even try to get a loan uh, than their white male counterparts, presumably because of those things I just said. Um, and so, you know, there, there are all sorts of ways that we um, were not supporting these ecosystems. And by the way, one of the other things we talk about in the book is, it, which is also, um, I think, a real challenge in our economy in many ways, is the massive consolidation in the banking sector, right? Four banks now comprise 80% of U.S. deposits, which is essentially the, the underpinning of loans. Um, and the community banking sector has just been decimated, right? And those community banks are the banks that um, oftentimes will have a less formulaic uh, underwriting criteria. They're also subject to different regulations in the large banks, so they have more flexibility to loan money to, to uh, new builders or people that, that maybe don't qualify under the same sort of algorithmic um, uh, tests of, of money. Um, and, you know, that's, that's really challenging. If you go back 20 years, there were 14,000 banks in the United States. Today, in the book, we cite 4,800. Today, it's fewer than 4,500. Um, most of that consolidation has happened at the lower end of the banking sector. Um, and so we really lack infrastructure 
to allow new builders to access capital, uh, you know, sort of across any way that they're trying. Um, and so, I, you know, these are, the, again, these are trends we talk about in the book. And, and we do, by the way, I should say, offer, Chapter 16 offers some ideas on, okay, well, what do we do about this, right? It's not a policy book, but it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an uplifting, actually, book, despite some of the challenges that I've outlined. And, and, um, and in that chapter, we wanted to offer just some practical suggestions for, well, what can you do if you care about this and, and you want to actually make a difference in your community or in, in the country more broadly? Yeah, let's let's talk about those suggestions a little bit. Uh, what do you think can the venture community maybe do to make improvements to this, or what can maybe the founder community do to make improvements to this, or what what can the government do, or what can the banks do? Just uh, just some sure. surface level suggestions that can help this help improve this. Well, given that your listenership skews venture and tech, uh, let me start there. And and this is not something we particularly talk about in the in the book because we don't focus on sort of the venture gaps. Uh, because again, it's one percent of companies, so that wasn't something that we really covered. But I would, what I say to my venture colleagues is, having spent now a couple of years really immersed in um, extending my network, in meeting new builders, and in um, trying to help diversify Foundry's own investment portfolio, um, that you know you need to be willing to get a little uncomfortable, and you need to, be, need to be willing to be in rooms where where all of a sudden you're the minority, right? I mean, it's so so rare. As a white male, especially one who's who's wealthy and hat and is, is check writer, right in our world, um, that where I show up in a room where I'm in the minority, and 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 yet that's happened over and over and over again as I've tried to expand my network, and and um, I think that it's really easy to stay comfortable, and if you're not being challenged, if you're not uncomfortable, if you don't occasionally say something that's maybe not quite the right thing to say, and and be open to that feedback you're really closing yourself off to the ability to sort of expand these networks. And, and for Foundry, uh, and by the way, it's not just work that I'm doing. My partners and I are doing this together. That's resulted in a significantly more diverse set of GPs that we funded over the last, say, three years or so when we really started leaning into this. Um, uh, but even before that, you know, sort of work, this work, this work predated that. Um, so that's what I'd say on the venture side, right? But on, on the practical side, as it relates to new builders, we talk about a handful of things in that, sort of practical chapter uh, on, on things to do that start with uh, just sort of recognizing new builders everywhere, right? I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I, I walk down main streets in, in, you know, towns where I am very differently, and I'm much more likely to go into that shop that looks like it's an independent shop. And I'm significantly much more likely to just talk to the person behind the counter and ask them about the shop, right? Oftentimes, it's the person who owns it, right? So they're, you know, they're the chief merchandiser, they do the accounting at night. And, you know, oftentimes, they're there manning the counter, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to keep the shop open. Um, and I found that to be really powerful just to, to sort of understand uh, who they are and what they are. Um, there are networks of support systems for new builder businesses. I think about uh, you know organizations like E for All, where you can be a mentor, and it's nothing wrong with being a mentor in Y Combinator or being a mentor in TechStars or some other program like that. But you know maybe from time to time, see if you can find a business that's a bit more uh, uh, sort of local oriented and and not necessarily in the tech ecosystem who lacks access to to the expertise perhaps that you have. Um, and so getting involved more directly in that way, I think, is really is really important. Um, and then there's some legislative things that we can do uh, to encourage uh, our legislators to consider small business in the policies that they put out. And the truth is, you know, big businesses have budgets for lobbying. Small businesses really don't. There's not there's not really a small business lobbying association. And so the result of that is that they're often kind of left out of these bills, even even you know with with bills that are are funded or proposed by uh, well-minded um, 
legislatures who really want to uh, do the right thing for small business, but they often don't really know what that is. And so I think, you know, if, if you have access to legislatures uh, at the either state level or the federal level, really lending your voice to say, hey, small business is important. We need to figure out better ways to uh, enable loan loan funds to be started, right? Or to enable capital to flow to these businesses or to have policies that level the playing field a little bit more for uh, small businesses, right? I mean, this this sort of push to lack of regulation, I think, actually belies the fact that um, there are some regulations that do a really good job of leveling that playing field. And, and big businesses are generally speaking in a better position to take advantage of kind of a free-for-all and lack of, of regulatory oversight. And, and that's, you know, that's a mistake, right? And I think both parties who talk about the power of small businesses, we trace, trace the history of that actually uh, in the book as well. Uh, but both political parties uh, who say they care about small businesses should be a little bit more thoughtful about um, sort of what, what red pens they take to, to re the regulatory frameworks that in, in many cases protect these small businesses. So those are just a couple of ideas. We talk about a few others in the book, uh, some of which are a bit bolder, but um, uh, you know, ideas that, that could really help spur entrepreneurship and, and really prevent us from this continued decline in entrepreneurial activity. Yeah, for sure. And uh, my last main, main question would be, uh, before we move, move on to the rapid fire round, who is this book for? Who should read The New Builders? And where can they get the book from? Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of main audiences. One is all of our peers in venture and tech uh, business, right? I think that it's important that they understand the broader ecosystem, the broader landscape of entrepreneurship. I would strongly encourage all of them to read it. Um, and then also new builders themselves, right? A lot of times what we heard from new builders is they felt very much alone. They didn't really have networks. They didn't understand that other people were were experiencing the same journeys that they were. And, and really, uh, it was really powerful for them you know, to witness them realize that they were part of a broader movement, a broader network. And so, um, you know, those, those, in many respects, those people are the people we really wrote the book for. Um, so th that's, that's who should read it. Um, people can pick up the book. If you go to our, our book website at thenewbuilders.com, um, not only can they figure out how to buy the book, but also uh, to the extent to which there are people listening who are uh, you know, teaching entrepreneurship classes and things like that, we created an entire syllabus uh, out of the book, which you can take specific chapters from, or you could teach an entire class on the new builders. Um, and that's all up there for free. Uh, we know we've got a number of, of professors across the country that are, are teaching the new builders as part of their curriculum now. And in fact, uh, there will soon be a Harvard case study on uh, one of the new builders that's, that is uh, currently being worked on by a, a Harvard Business School professor. So lots of material for people to dig into and, and um, hopefully people will visit the site, buy the book and, and, uh, and more. Yeah. That sounds very interesting. I'll make sure to put the link to the website in the show notes below so that our listeners can get there easily. Now, moving on to moving on to our rapid fire round, which is about the investments that you make through Foundry. It'll be five quick questions and you have to get, give five quick answers. Sounds good. And you did not preview these. I should let your listeners know. So I, I don't know what you're about to ask, which will be fun. For sure. Yeah. The first one is sectors and regions you invest in. So we invest across the country, um, and we don't think about the world in sectors. We think about it more in terms of themes. So the themes that we tend to be most excited about right now are uh, marketplaces. We've done a lot of marketplace investing and done well with it, um, as well as connective technologies. We call that theme glue. Um, there are a couple others on the Foundry website if people want to check that out. For sure. And uh, what about the regions? Uh, are you investing in the U.S. or across the world? Yeah, across the U.S. Across the U.S. Got it. Yeah. 
And what stage you typically invest in? Uh, we typically invest in Series A or Series B. Many of our investments, in fact, most of our investments follow our network of uh, partner funds, we call them, but underlying funds that we've made investments in. We have about 46 uh, venture funds that we're investors in. So most of our investing follows them, and we tend to follow the round after that they, inve- they invest. So they often do the seed round, and then we like to come in the Series A, sometimes the Series B. Got it. And what's the typical check size? Uh, we typically invest between 5 and $8 million for our first check. Um, we can write checks up to $25 million. We occasionally do like a later stage deal where we'll write a check that large. Um, but our, our typical investments, uh, initial investment is between five and eight. And our typical total investment in a business is between somewhere between 10 and 15. All right. Uh, so in case there is a way uh, for founders to pitch directly to Foundry, uh, then where can they pitch you? Yeah, I mean, the best way, I mean, first, they should go to our website at foundry.vc and, and make sure they check out, you know, what we've what we've invested in and what we're interested in, how we describe our themes. All of our contact information is there. Um, my email is seth at foundrygroup.com uh, or seth at foundry.vc. Either one will work. Uh, and um, they can feel free to reach, reach out to me there. Great. Uh, last one, where can our listeners follow you? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter. I'm at sether. Um, that's probably the best way to, to find me. That's where I'm most prolific. Or they can also go to my blog at sethlevine.com, S-E-T-H-L-E-V-I-N-E.com. We can put that in the show notes as well. For sure. And uh, I write, I've been writing for a long time on uh, you know various topics related to uh, venture and uh, sometimes broad, more broadly politics and, and what's going on in the world. Great. Uh, I'll make sure to put all these links in the show notes below so that our listeners can get there easily. Thank you for coming on, Seth. It was lovely talking to you about the new builders and about the entrepreneurship ecosystem in the U.S. and how what we can do to uh, make it better. So thank you for coming on and happy investing and good luck with the book. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation, Prashant. Likewise. Thank you for coming on. <laughs>